Hey, Carrie. Hey, Parker. How are you? How's it with your soul? My soul is good, my friend. Just got back from a month in the boundary waters of northern Minnesota, and being on the boundary, I was thinking a lot about the growing edge. That's perfect. That's perfect for our conversation today with Jerry Colonna. Yes, Jerry's going to take us across a really important growing edge for a lot of us that calls us to new opportunities and new responsibilities. So, welcome to The Growing Edge. I'm Parker Palmer. And I'm Carrie Newcomer. To the words and habit between us And to us and how we live between the words It's hard to give Jerry Colonna a succinct introduction. He's had such a rich and varied career. For me, that problem is compounded by the fact that 15 years ago, Jerry and I became good friends, the way people do when they come together around some of life's most difficult moments. So I know Jerry at personal depths that have led me to call him my big brother, even though at 58, he's 25 years younger than I am. Jerry grew up in Brooklyn and has written movingly about his traumatic childhood In his 20s and 30s, he rose to prominence in New York's financial community as a partner at J.P. Morgan and a leading venture capitalist. But in the midst of all that success, he began to slip into a very dark place, wondering for months on end if life was worth living. He reached in and reached out for help, and through what I call the alchemy of the soul, used that crisis to energize a turn toward a powerful vocation of coaching, consulting, and guiding leaders in, and organizations, especially in high tech, in support of work that builds us and others up instead of tearing us down. Jerry now lives on a ranch in Colorado, not far from Boulder, where he leads a wonderful organization called Reboot, that has extended his vocation all around the world. Given his life on his Colorado ranch, it's tempting to say that Jerry has come a long, long way from Brooklyn. But one of Jerry's key teachings, which is the core of his first book, titled Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up, one of his core teachings is that we bring our past with us wherever we roam. And part of the key to good work and good living is to understand and examine our past so that its dynamics can become life-giving for us and others rather than bringing us down. Jerry is now putting the finishing touches on a new book called Reunion, Leadership and the Journey to Belonging, a book that reaches beyond our inner lives into the vision of the beloved community. And that's going to be our focus today. Jerry, it's a great joy for Carrie and me to welcome you to The Growing Edge. Mm. Well, may you each someday be introduced by Parker Palmer. (laughs) Because to have had that experience, oh my God, you're going to make me cry from the minute this thing starts off. Uh, God bless you, brother. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for Hi, being here. And welcome. I, 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 um, uh, that was a beautiful introduction and so wonderful and true. And 
It is great to meet you today. Uh, I have been hearing about you and reading about you, and uh, and of course, Parker's. Um, if your ears have been burning for the last fifteen years, he's been saying <laughs> lovely uh, things mm. about you. So it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you for for joining us today. Well, it's an honor, and uh, your ears should have been burning as well, Carrie, because uh, very rarely does a conversation not begin with, so Carrie and I were talking the other day. (laughs) (laughs) I know that uh, you have moved our dear friend's heart and soul and uh, made him uh, an even greater person, and so thank you for, for being his friend in that way. Amen to that. Okay, now I'm going to get all weepy, but... (laughs) It's the thing I do. It's the thing you do, and do so well. Um, (laughs) So I I guess entering into conversation about your last book, Reboot, and this Mm. new one. I've been able to read uh, a good portion of it in, in its draft form, and I am so moved powerfully moved and touched by this book. Now, in, in Reboot, you offered your own experience, the deep inner exploration that begins a conversation about making meaning, about more empathetic and aware leadership, releasing old wounds that limit our current lives. Reunion feels like a very personal and powerful expansion that becoming better humans is where we start. Mm. And from there, from there, it leads us to braving truth and uh, engaging actively in the world in new ways. So Mm. could you talk a little bit about that reboot and what that was about and how this is, you know, did I get it right? Does this feel like an expansion for you? It does feel like an expansion. It feels like a, a turning while staying connected to the roots. That's that's what the attempt is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the root is this notion that better humans make better leaders. And as I often joke, well, duh. I mean, <laughs> it's obvious, right? <laughs> um but then the follow-on question is the more interesting question, which is, and so if that's so obvious, why do we struggle yeah. with leadership that is actually not toxic, that is generative? And what um, I believe, and I, and I try to write about in both books, is that uh, those of us who hold power, however it's manifested, whether it's in the color of our skin our economic base, um, the, the happenstance of our ancestors' movement towards whiteness, for example, which I explore in depth in the new book, those of us who hold power have a set of moral and ethical responsibilities. And one set of responsibilities is to actually clean up your own mess, you know, is to, is to really look at your own Uh, behaviors with um, a generous and curious eye, not with an uh, attempt to generate guilt or shame, but to really get lean into the question, as I often speak of, how have I been complicit, not responsible 
for the conditions of my life I say I don't want. And I think that that work is really important, and I think it's really important for those of us who hold power to go first. Because when those who hold power go first, they create more safety for those who have less power. Yes. And by the way, our mutual friend Parker over here went first for me when I was 38 in his beautiful book, Let Your Life Speak. Because by he, by he's speaking so eloquently about his own struggles, Parker, you gave me permission to speak about my own. So there's that power dynamic of who goes first. So pause. As we shift, and, and I started thinking about what is that leader's responsibility to creating what I refer to as systemic belonging in the world, I realized the insufficiency of the construct, better humans make better leaders. Meaning that to live into the fullness of what is potential and what is possible, we need to use as the base that radical self-inquiry. Who am I? How have I done? How have I been organized? And how does that show up in my life? To begin to alter that core question of how have I been complicit into a new and more profound question, which is how have I been complicit in and benefited from the conditions in the world I say I don't want to see. Mm-hmm. And in a similar fashion, those of us who have power have to go first on that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really appreciated so much about that. Um, the idea of those who hold power going first. Uh, Parker's book, Let Your Life Speak, also was very it was seminal for me in terms of being able to, to follow the safe space that he created for uh, being able to talk about things in an open, human, uh, and vulnerable way. Also, this idea of looking deeply into our own lives, into our own complicity, and also how we've benefited with curiosity. I think mm-hmm. that idea of curiosity and that idea of a certain sense of, of compassion mm-hmm. is so key, because I think it's very easy to, to, to kind of turn away or back away because, oh my gosh, that's going to create a lot of guilt. Um, mm-hmm. Well, g- guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. And then as human beings, um, the natural response is a kind of defense mechanism. And then we get really fancy hand-waving and say, no, 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 pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, Right. Um, we're not going to actually look at the question uh, of how we came to be who we are today because it's just dangerous. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. We hold on to, you know, as you read about in the draft of the book, the myths and fables because they construct a view of the world that is actually quite safe. You know, our ancestors were resilient, not privileged, Mm -hmm. right? Not fortunate by, uh, you know, a chalk mark on a lapel that said yes versus a chalk mark on a lapel that says, no, you go home, right? We don't, we don't come into relationship with that reality. We, we, we propel forward and support this notion that, 
somehow we're better versus we're the same. And I don't mean the same under the skin, that myth of colorblindness, but I mean that sense that our experiences, our stories are actually the same stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought that was really fascinating in the book, um, talking about that idea of sameness, the difference mm-hmm. between we're all the same, and but going a little deeper with that, it's like, no, we're not actually all the same, that we have different uh, experiences, we have different contexts we grew up with, uh, different mm-hmm. challenges, different, you know, we aren't the same. But at the same time, there mm-hmm. are these threads of human experience that certain mm-hmm. things do connect and connect us, that beloved mm-hmm. community that, you're, that we talk about. Uh, and I, I loved how you made the distinction and, and how you made it just mm-hmm. now. Well, let's acknowledge and honor um, two of the writers that I reference, three really, uh, John A. Powell, whose pioneering work on the notion of othering is so critical, and of course the late and beautiful Bell Hooks, uh, who speaks so eloquently, and I'm thinking now of her book, Belonging, A Culture of Place. But that's not the only place. She also writes about it in Killing Rage, on ending racism. And then, of course, Dr. Martin Luther King, who gave us the gift of that phrase, as far as I know, of beloved community. And, you know, the thing is that we have grown up with uh, tension around what I refer to as the myth of sameness. And it has blocked our understanding of the interconnectedness and interdependence. And so we strive so hard to see each other as the same and somehow maintain a structure of systemic othering in doing so, because then it naturally leads to, well, my ancestors did X, why can't yours? Or why can't you? Right? And, and what we fail to then see is that there's something really beautiful in the interconnectedness between each of us. And so while there is a similarity in the experiences, there's a similarity in the feelings, right? If you, because of how you identify as your gender, are denied a certain kind of health care, it is part of a through line of human denial, of human rights denials, but it is not the same. And by pretending that there's a sameness there, we lose the ability to uh, bring forth our natural state of empathy, our ability to imagine a connection between my experience or the experience of my relatives and your experience. And to say the obvious, we've had a whole, as Americans, we've had a whole cultural apparatus around reinforcing this myth of sameness. Um, I think quickly of the melting pot which was a big, big deal when I was growing up, which literally means let's put everybody into boiling water or boiling oil or whatever it may be and melt them down into this kind of sameness where nobody sounds different from each other's, nobody looks different, nobody likes different kinds of music or has different cultural habits because all of that is threatening. I'd like to probe a little more into the question of why community at a level that respects 
otherness mm. that respects diversity is so threatening to us. Mm. My, my experience is, and I'll loop back for a moment, Jerry, to your comments about who goes first and mm. how important it is for the leader to go first. If, if it's the case that among the three of us, you, me, and Carrie, I mm. went first because I'm 25 years older than anybody on the planet, as far as I can tell. <laughs> and far more handsome than oh, the rest yeah. of us. Well, that goes without saying, especially when, it's, when this isn't a video, right? <laughs> so when I go first in a situation like this, what happens is that, is that the first, second, third pecking order immediately disappears. When we go to that depth with each other, we, we go into community. I mean, that's where I have been with you and with Carrie from the get-go. Um, you read the book, and, and that just led to this very human-level conversation about shared experience, which, which made us, which put us uh, on the same playing field as, as equals, as colleagues, as friends, as dearly beloveds. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Leaders in organizations will find that if they go first, that may well happen for at least some of the people they're leading. But there's obviously an implicit threat in that for a leader because it flies in the face of mythologies about leadership as, as staying in control, not, you know, not wearing your heart on your sleeve or playing your cards close to your vest. Um, as some of the tricks and tools of leadership. So I'd love to hear you talk about the threat that we have to walk through in order to get there. Because in, in my life, I haven't really experienced that as a threat. I, I, I've experienced the relief of friendship, of people caring about one another when they meet at this deeper, more soulful level. Yeah. Um, I'll say a a few things. There is a direct connection between our traditional conceits of what a leadership position is and um, the importance that we're placing on this sort of going first, this this authentic presentation of the reality of the the experience. I want to stick a pin in that, though, and note that going first doesn't mean being the only one who speaks. <laughs> yes. So you go first and then you shut up, right? And you listen. And because that's an important move here. Um, okay, so back to the hesitancy that I see in my clients, for example, or the hesitancy that I might have experienced when I was writing Reboot. Um, where I expose so much of my own self. Um, the chatter in my head was, um, you're being narcissistic. The chatter in my head was, who cares about your story? The chatter in my head was, what are your clients going to think of you if they see that you have struggled? Right Now, each one of those lines shows up for those of us who hold power, and it shuts us down. And it creates this artifice of, uh, of everything's okay, 
or I'm in control. And, and yet the people around us, they feel the dissonance of that. And then they call up a coach like me and they say, we have a trust issue in our organization. Well, guess what? You're not telling the truth. So that's the first piece of this. The second piece of this, um, uh, when we carry that forward, there's a, there's a vulnerability, there's, a, there's, a, there's an implicit threat that's communicated in those whispered voices inside of us. What are they going to think of you? They're going to see that you don't know what you're doing. They're going to uh, disavow your leadership. They're going to find. They're going to leave. Okay, and that's in that sort of narrow confines of an organizational structure. But when we expand it, as we're, I'm trying to do with reunion, and we start to look at this, we see the thread continuing. And so, what is the threat? Right? What is the threat to those of us who have been racialized as white? despite the experience of our ancestors, who may not have been perceived as white, whatever the hell that means, right? I think the threat is the tenuous hold that our ancestors grasp on the rung right above them. I think the threat is almost a somatically held realization that uh, one wrong move and the mark on the the chalk mark on the lapel sends you back to wherever you are, and so there's a vicious hold on what has been gained. That's very very similar to my mind to the vicious hold that a leader in an organization has on this perception that they're somehow supposed to be infallible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. and it's really rooted in a misconception of what power truly is. And it's just like I've experienced in watching my clients or even my own self go first and then shutting up and seeing the effect it has on everyone around them to enhance safety. I know if we can have a broader conversation about even just that phrase, racialized as white, right? It just pokes a hole in the notion of, I am white. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what teachers like John A. Powell are trying to tell us about these constructs that are very real. The consequences of them are very real, but, but they live in this, in this constructed way. And they have the effect of, of maintaining dominant structures that actually decrease the safety for everybody else around. Yeah. So an observation and a quick question. It's important, I think, for me at least, to underscore the notion that when you were talking about this syndrome that we get caught in, you you use the word somatic. So it's it's mm-hmm. visceral. It's mm-hmm. it's pre-conscious. Mm-hmm. It's it's something that we have a hard time getting access to. Um, just pin that as, as the observation that I think we really have to hold in mind. But move to the question. Help us understand racialized as white. For right. a lot of people, that's a very countercultural way of talking about race. 
I mean, we can start with the premise that race does not exist in nature. Right. Uh, that race is all is an undifferentiated continuum of genetic frequencies into which we break with lines and say you're this or that depending on where you fall on that continuum. But racialized as white, that's a big package, which I'd love to hear you open up for us. It, it is a big package and, and larger in some ways than this conversation could contain because it speaks to everything from pigmentation to physical characteristics that are genetic and, and passed on. If we think about it through the lens of culture and we think about it as um, an experience, one of the ways that was helpful for me to sort of think about it was to unpack the history of my ancestors and the movement of my ancestors. And in reunion, I unpack the history of the ancestors that I grew up with accepting, my Italian ancestors, and the ancestors that I denied, uh, my father's biological parents uh, who were Irish immigrants uh, to New York. And my father was adopted at 18 months old, uh, but did not know of his adoption until he was 21. And, and uh, I tell the story of how he found out it involves screaming Italians and so lots of stuff. Um, and so what I tried to do was understand who those folks were, both on both sides of my genetic library, if you will. And what was undeniable was the questioning of whiteness for my ancestors. Carrie, when we started, we, we chatted briefly about Italian and Italian-American culture and history, and I asked about where your folks were from. And, you know, my ancestors came from the South, and they were uh, racialized as less than. They were darker skin. It was this obsession with pigmentation. And there was a kind of blaming of poverty Right. Rather than poverty being a consequence of economic or racial policy, poverty became a consequence of pigmentation. Um, which, you know, as soon as you say it out loud, you start to say, well, that's just absurd. Right. And yet we carry this over and over again. And so when they came to the United States, they were unwelcome. And language that was used by those who held power, very, very similar to language we've seen from the modern-day Republican Party. And not just Republicans, but the modern-day Republican Party under Trump. Animals. You know, likening them to animals. And in a similar fashion, my Irish ancestors were first racialized and dominated by uh, what one genealogist friend of mine called our Saxon overlords, right? And they were less than. And yet both categories of my ancestors, both categories of my kin, moved towards whiteness and moved towards acceptance and dominance. Some of that dominance was political power. But, you know, there's an there's a interesting example on the Irish side, you're probably familiar with 
Daniel O'Connell's uh, relationship with Frederick Douglass in the mid-19th century. And of course, O'Connell arguably is the father of modern-day free republic of Ireland. And uh, he came out with very broad statements, abolitionist statements. And he was set to uh, do a tour of the United States when the Boston Irish community rejected it. And so he backed his language down. And here was a fiery, outspoken opponent to systemic othering who saw natural alliances and then altered his, his language to be acceptable to the people who had actually moved towards the safety of whiteness, moved towards the safety of the dominant culture. And so that's what I, I, I know I use a shorthand when I talk about racialized as white. Um, that movement towards the, the dominant culture gets associated with pigmentation, gets associated with physical characteristics that when you actually look at the human population, the hard and fast lines aren't quite so hard and aren't so clear. I don't know if that addressed your question, Parker. It, it absolutely does. It really helps unpack a, a, this big concept of racialized as white. I'm going to ask one more question and then um, open it up again for an, another approach from Carrie. But I guess what I'd like to ask at this point, Jerry, is now that we have a sort of fundamental understanding of racialized as white, what challenge or task do you want to pose to the serious reader of your book? To me, for example, who stands in that lineage of your Saxon overlords. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, we forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that helps, for starters, really, <laughs> believe me. But what's my job under the circumstances that you've described we're not talking about leadership necessarily yet um, in, in mm -hmm. terms of corporate or business leadership, which I know is one of your big concerns, and we want to get to that eventually. Mm -hmm. But for the citizen like me, uh, who's mm -hmm. trying to find his way or her way in this very complicated and contested environment, what's the job you want to set before us? Well, um as you know, I'm always uncomfortable with the sage on the stage posture. So uh, I want to stand shoulder to shoulder with you. And the way I'll respond to that is to say, what I see my work to do, which might possibly be your work as well, especially those of us who, again, want to, with curiosity, ask the question, how have I been complicit in and benefited from the systemic oppression and systemic othering that I don't want to see in the world, whether it's of my sisters or my children or my nieces and nephews or even just, you know, my siblings from other parents. The work I think we need to do is, is to start to ask ourselves what what is it that I'm willing to give up that I love in order to see that world come into being? Mm. Yeah. And, you know, that's a, that's a um, jujitsu move that we use in coaching all the time, right? When someone is sort of identifying their life, what are you willing to give up that you love? 
And in this case, if we're talking in a broad basis, I think it's the safety that our ancestors secured for us, God bless them, by their movement. And if we're willing to give that up, we're willing to stand and uh, be silent no more, for example, and to speak up and out when we know that the way our community treats each other, community treats individuals, it's just wrong. It's evil. Then we open up the possibility for that community that we so yearn for. Mm-hmm. Kind of living into this notion that, you know, as I said in the book, we're all fingers on the same hand. We're individuated, but intrinsically connected. And that it's impossible to identify where the finger ends and the hand begins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that's the work to do, I think. It all begins, I guess, Jerry, with somebody like me letting the question burn in his mind, heart, and soul. Because it, it does burn. Mm-hmm. It, it hurts to take that question seriously. But I, I feel the weight and the urgency. It's interesting to me, as you were talking, I thought, well, Parker, you've, you've been all over the question, how, how am I conspiring in my own diminishment for right. many, many years? Right. And tried to hold that off. But the question, how am I conspiring in the diminishment of other people, is a harder question to come to. Um, and I'm very grateful to you, Jerry, for pressing on that front. Yes, that idea of silence being implied consent, and that mm. what an important idea that is in in your book, and and also um, in terms of looking at overcoming separation and othering. Mm. Uh, at the fabric of our current society. Um, you talk about um, my, your story is my story, which I, I found very right. beautiful. And, you know, this was a concept from Reboot, I believe, you know, the idea of our subroutines, that hmm. we have certain beliefs, old beliefs that came to us, some of us from our own experience, some from the experience of the ancestors that have come to us. That's right. And, you know, the very personal work of looking at our subroutines, because sometimes they're visceral, sometimes they're somatic, sometimes they take really brave encounters with what is this subroutine, this feeling of unworthiness, this feeling of non-safety, whatever that subroutine is, and how does that affect in Reboot, it was, how does it affect my leadership? How does it affect me as a human being, but also in how I interact as a leader? But you're also saying, you know, doing that kind of work allows us to look at your story as my story as well. Yeah. Can, you, can you talk a little, little bit about, there were some beautiful examples you gave in the book, very different kinds of people from very different cultural experiences, and yet, there was a thread of your story is my story. Could you speak a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about the realization that your story is my story, that phrase that came to me. And again, just to put some context there, after Reboot came out, um, I, w- I was doing the thing that authors do, right? And I was flying around the world talking and yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. But what was really fascinating was the steady inflow of people reaching out and using some form of that phrase or another. And Carrie, you're right, the, the diversity of people who said that um, shocked me. Um, to put some context on it, as you know from the book, there are folks who have been incarcerated who have been reading the book. And I, I continue to get feedback. And so, for example, just a, f- a few weeks ago, yet another person, this time someone incarcerated on death row, reaching out and saying, in effect, your story is my story. And that reading my story, me going first, created an awareness. What was most profoundly interesting that day was I also got a note from the CEO of a Fortune 100 company who said the same thing. Now, if if I'm like an electrical conduit, if both of those people say to me, your story is my story, then if my understanding of transitive property of mathematics, right, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, their stories are their story, are the same story. Those two men. And yet they would never see themselves in that way. So what is it that, 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 that this, this universal uh, language here? And so word of explanation, the word subroutine refers to programming at the base level of any computer. It kind of tells a hunk of hardware. You're a computer, wake up, do these things. Well, many, and as you point out, many of the subroutines that we grow up with, like anger is dangerous, so it's better to be anxious than angry, right? That was one from my childhood. Oftentimes they're inherited. They're belief systems that are inherited. Uh, And in this case, it might be, don't rock the boat. Don't you rock the boat. Because if you speak up, even though you see your friend getting beaten because of the color of their skin, you're going to upset everything. And even though that basic human heart of compassion beats inside of you, you say nothing. And so silence equals not only complicity and assent, but as the activists in the 1980s taught us in response to the AIDS epidemic, silence equals death. I mean, because this is the thing. People are dying because we're scared to speak up and speak out. We're scared to get it wrong. We're scared to rock the boat. Mm -hmm. We're scared to, to somehow jeopardize at the somatic level, at this base visceral level, our safety. And so, as I write in the book, we end up burying fourth graders. Yeah. Because we're too afraid to challenge a fetish around guns 
as if guns are going to keep us safe from the other. Yeah. Whoever the other is. We have children who are questioning their gender being denied health care because it's dangerous. I mean, this is the through line. And I come back then to your idea about who leads with that. And because, uh, you know, growing up in this culture as a woman, if I called out sexism at every turn that I experienced it in my life, it would, in some situations, not be safe. Um, Yes. If I was open about my challenges, Mm -hmm. it may be just my experience with that would be, oh, another way that women are weaker, you know, instead of, oh, what a cool person. They're being vulnerable. Um, Right. So what happens, I think, for people who are not in always in the highest power structure, where do I choose my battles? Right. How do I do this in a way that's going to be most effective? Right. And that's always this very hard and difficult and challenging. When I'm, when am I not speaking up and being complicit? When is speaking up not the best and effect, most effective time to do it? So it's, it's really, a, a, I think, sometimes a, a really complicated assessment, and it takes a lot of inner work, inner grounding, and also paying attention to your heart in the moment. But how, what do you think about that? Because it, it does go back to this idea of leadership with it. Yeah. I, I, well, first of all, I want to acknowledge your experience in your body um, because, it, and it is different than my experience in my body. And, and those of us who walk around in bodies that look like mine need to pause always and acknowledge that difference. And I can imagine that perhaps as a girl, you, you were taught a particular subroutine yeah. that was designed to keep you safe and yay to the subroutine because it did keep you relatively safe as it may have kept the ancestral women in your lineage safe. Here's how we are to be. (laughs) Safe-ish. Yeah, yeah. And let's also acknowledge that not all of those behaviors stemmed entirely from an inner set of lineages and subroutines, that the reality is that it wasn't until the 1970s that women could have their own credit card. And it wasn't that long ago that women didn't have the right to vote. I mean, these are sort of mind-blowing facts that we cannot lose sight of. Let alone, we are still debating equal rights. Yeah. Still. Yeah. I mean, all of my life, right? And then we have uh, bids to control choices and bodies in ways that, right? So all of those realities are there as well. Those externalities are there. So I will offer what I can, knowing that I have a different experience, I will offer it what I can, which is on the one hand to acknowledge my own subroutines with a kiss and with gratitude. Mm. Because again, they were there to keep us safe and to create some discernment to be able to say, is it really true that it's not safe? And the chances are, it is really true that it's not safe. Which then goes to this, 
It's not just enough to be a better human, to be a better leader. Those of us who have power have to speak up, right? I have to be able to withstand the feelings that arise when you share what you just shared, Carrie. The sadness, the inadequacy, the sense of helplessness that I can feel. Because that's not the world I want to see. And the typical defense mechanism that kicks in is to deny all of that yeah. and explain it away. And I can't do that. Not if I'm going to live into, as you know from my book, the, the exhortation from my daughter, Emma, whom Parker knows well, who said to me, Dad, it's not enough to be an ally. You have to be a co-conspirator. Yeah. Very powerful. Yeah. You have to throw a brick yeah. at the plate glass window. You have to say, and I don't mean I'm not advocating violence, but you have to say, enough. People are dying because we are unwilling to, you know, as Parker helped me see, acknowledge the dismembered parts of our own experience. Yes. There was this beautiful scene you wrote about where in conversation with a woman, you invoked her ancestors mm. and asked the ancestors, the ancestors that can be, you talk about hungry ghost, mm. and you talk <laughs> about those uh, supportive ancestors and the mm. difference between that, which is another big conversation, but it mm. was really beautiful because it was like that balance of acknowledging you know, what were the subroutines? What what were the mythologies that came through that were true or not true? Um, mm -hmm. But also, when embracing those, when claiming them with love and compassion and curiosity, mm -hmm. we're able to then walk with our ancestors' strengths mm -hmm. as, as well as some of those other things that came. And I think that that was a really beautiful piece of working with your story is my story. So many of us walk with hungry ghosts and walk with ancestors. Yeah. I, I want to say something that I think that in my mind links the two of you together in this as, as to continue with this same inquiry. So mm -hmm. I have the privilege of knowing both of you as human beings, as friends, mm -hmm. uh, friendships nurtured in deep conversations and as artists in the public world. Uh, Carrie, obviously, in the field of music, Jerry, in the field of writing and teaching uh, in its various forms. And wh what I'm aware of in both of your cases is how your art has, has taken the wound and wounds of your experiences and performed that alchemy of transmitting or of transforming that which is hard and difficult and sharp-edged and even murderous into a life-giving gift for other people, as, and I think also for yourselves. I mean, I think both of you would, would probably say, tell me if I'm wrong, but that your particular form of art has been salvific in some ways for each of you because of that alchemical possibilities. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to me to begin to think about 
the fact that every person has some form of artistry to which he or she is called. For some people, it's raising kids. For some people, it's being a good friend or a good neighbor. Uh, for some people, it's, it's something else. It doesn't have to be one of the recognized fine arts because living is a fine art. Living well, working well, no matter what you do, is a fine art. And so everybody has this opportunity to transform the base elements of life into some kind of human gold. And I just want to say, I think both of you have done that. That requires acts of consciousness, of awareness, of unearthing stuff, of digging it up, of working hard on coming, uh, on ra raising that which is visceral, that which is somatic, to, to consciousness where you have access to it and can use it as the raw material for your art. And that's why when I'm in your presence, either one of you, both of you, um, I know about the, the passions that you hold about justice. I know about the anger you have about injustice. I know these partly because I share those things, but I've, I have always found both of you profoundly hospitable presences where none of that is, is off-putting or alienating, but you're always working with it in, a, in an invitational way. Come, taste, experience, feel, share, join with me, welcome to the human race. I just want to offer that as a little blessing on the work you do and also to hope in hopes of opening a door for other people to think about alchemical transformations in their own lives. Well, you're moving us deeply by someone who is so skilled and an artist in your own right to, to call us out in that way. I feel confident I can say that for both of us. Um, one of the things that comes to mind is that movement of turning wounds into something sacred. And there are many attributes of this art of growing up. One of them is to turn those wounds into something sacred so that um, that which we as children and our ancestors went through was not in vain. Yeah. Um, and that there is something generative and about the future that um, gets unlocked when this happens. And I think of, there was a moment when I was writing Reunion, it was in the first summer, I believe it was August 2nd, because it was James Baldwin's birthday. And you know, what happens on someone's birthday like that, the, the internet is flooded with quotes. So there was this quote that I went deep on, which was um, from a New York Times article uh, after his passing, in which he talked about when he's writing, he's looking at things he doesn't want to know. Uh, yeah. And I think that there's something deeply powerful about looking at the things we don't want to know. Because our lineage, our safety mechanisms, our subroutines teach us, don't look in the corner. Don't look under the rug. Don't rock the boat. There's a story. It works. Right? But 
looking at the things we don't want to know turns those wounds into something sacred. Yeah, yeah. And when you've mastered an art, when you've mastered an art the way you two have, everybody listens and, and says, your story is my story. That's what, you're, that's what Carrie's songs do. That's what Jerry's story does. People are listening and saying, your story is my story. That's how it happens. And there's something joyous too about it. There, there's hard work and sometimes painful work. And at the same time, this idea of creatively doing something different. That, mm. you know, we do that through our, our own personal work and through um, the art forms that we, we um, engage in. But as Parker said, life is an artistry and people have all kinds of ways that they are creative in the world. And there is a certain joyousness to think and hope in thinking it's possible. It's possible to do something differently. And, and that can be creative and generative and life-giving in all kinds mm -hmm. of ways. Um, not to diminish, like I said, the hard work of this and, mm -hmm. and, and what's going to challenge us and push the growing edge. Mm -hmm. But there is some kind of real, like, what a delight if, if this kind of creative thought, this kind of creative engagement um, ships something in myself mm -hmm. and ships something in the world, that it's possible. Yeah. And I, I don't know, there's something, there was something very, I said, powerful, and there's a sense of possibility and joyous with, with it, too. I, I know we're getting close to the end of our podcast, and I can't believe it. You know, <laughs> I, I could probably uh, sit and chat mm. with you. We haven't even started on the Italian families yet. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to come back. You know, we I'm just, now gesturing and, with my hands as only yeah, a, a Saxon and, overlord can. You know, <laughs> two grandfathers that had push carts, you know. Yes. Um, but uh, we are getting closer to the end of our, uh, of our uh, podcast today. One of the questions that we, we ask all mm. of our conversation partners is, what's on your growing edge? Yeah. Um, I think we've been talking about that with this new book some, so I, we may be a little redundant, but I'm going to just go to go ahead and ask it. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say this, um, because you, you both, the way you've received this draft of the book, because that's all that you've had so far, and and I'm still working on the end of chapter seven, which, you know, we'll we'll leave as a cliffhanger because it's a it's a doozy. <laughs> um, the edge for me right now is exactly where we are right now. I mean, first of all, I'm speaking about a work that has not even been finished and edited, and so there's a you know my breath catches as as an artist. Uh, as someone who endeavors uh, to, to, to write carefully, um, there's an edge for me in, in talking about this at this moment in time. But the bigger edge is, which I have to, which I, I will freely admit, is I worry, right? I mean, after Reboot, the book, uh, there is this projected ideal onto me of like some sort of Zen Buddhist monk if only Jerry could touch the, if I could touch the hem of Jerry's pants, somehow I will be healed. And so, and God, it's gorgeous. And boy, it's 
stultifying. And so there's an edge here, which is, well, what if I annoy people? What if I anger people? Uh, and then, of course, the kid from Brooklyn comes in and says, yeah, you got a problem with that? <laughs> okay, I'll take you out, you know? It's like, and so all of that gets operated right now because I'm pushing against certain belief systems. Yeah. I'm challenging uh, I may have some hard conversations with people who might otherwise have considered me a friend. Yeah. But I have no choice. I have no choice. You know, unfortunately, I have this dear, dear friend and teacher who <laughs> modeled for me speaking truth to power over and over and over again. And if I'm going to live up to the promise I've made my friend Parker to carry that work forward, then I can't back away from this. Um, shoulder to shoulder, buddy, hand in hand. Got it. Always great to be with you, my friend. Thank you, you so too. much. Take good care. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out the next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation, too. Now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into the conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Allison Quance for creative envisioning, direction, and production, and because she is always on the growing edge. <laughs> <laughs>